just have the privilege of hearing from Sandy Patterson this morning, and I just wanted to say it is on um, her experiences as well as lessons that she's learned, and I just really want to honor the ways that she is opening up and being vulnerable with us and sharing some hard things. And so I just want to encourage all of us to be as respectful and attentive and intentional as we can in this space. So I'm going to open us in prayer. And again, I just want to say thank you on behalf of Free Methodist, Sandy, to you for preparing this and for be willing, being willing to be so open um, with your past experiences. So thank you. So uh, I'm going to pray. God, thank you so much for your presence among us. As we learn from Samir, you are not only for us, you are with us. Um, And would you be with us during this time? Would you bless Sandy uh, as she speaks? Um, Would you bless all of her preparations, um, all of the unraveling and untangling that she has had to do um, from this trauma that she has experienced? Would you be with her as she speaks to us? Um, and would we be witnesses to your truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Right. First thing on my agenda was to pray, (laughs) and she did that, so I'm glad. Um, So before I get started, I wanted to just kind of see where my audience was at. So how many of you have listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church? Just a couple. Okay, interesting. That helps me know, like... Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll provide a little more background for you um, because of that. And then, it, how many of you are familiar with Mark Driscoll and his ser- like have heard his sermons at any point? Um, okay, not very much. Okay. And then my last question is: How many of you have no idea about those things but are here for the church trauma piece? Okay, more that direction. Um. Well. Today, um, mainly I want to, I'll share kind of from my experience at Mars Hill, and um, it'll be sort of a case study of what went wrong and uh, what I learned through that. And then next week, I'm going to kind of make it more broad in terms of um, church trauma and like, I'm not a therapist, so I will share kind of some frameworks and things that I've learned through the process. Um, but uh, mainly this week I'm going to be kind of more like a business case study, and then next week will be more kind of broad um, stuff. So um, after I had prepared everything for today, I went back and listened to a couple episodes of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church um, to like kind of make it more fresh in my mind, and I wound up just profoundly sad kind of mm-hmm. all over again. Um, just by actually the first time I listened to it, it felt therapeutic for me because I was like, oh, that's what was going on, (laughs) you know, because we lived through this experience and didn't have words and sometimes didn't even know everything that had happened. Um, so then, but going back and just like lamenting and so, um, I don't want to take this discussion lightly. Um, church hurt is like deeply just harmful um, because when we open ourselves up to the Lord and to things of the scripture and these questions of that matter to who we are at the very core um, and then when those things are used weaponized or um, there's lying things like that it just really can hurt deeply and be so so confusing um, 
And it's tempting for me in the midst of that to say, oh, but God is close to the brokenhearted and, you know, like I want to rush in with the good news. But then I'm reminded that when you're all of those pains are fresh, that can just feel like a slap, like a platitude. And I don't know that the church understands that, like the church, like all of us understand that of how harmful just giving the right answer can be um, when somebody has suffered pain from the church because um, the right answer doesn't feel right when it's been weaponized and taught to you in the wrong ways. Um, I really don't have never heard Mars Hill and I don't know if it was about sexual abuse okay. or that kind of thing. I don't know anything about it. So if you could just give us a little outline yep. about what this situation was that you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. So Mars Hill Church was founded in 1996 in Seattle. Um, we, Don and I moved there in 1998, late 98, 99. We started going to Mars Hill. And um, it was a very young church that kind of grew really fast. Um, it was uh, Mark Driscoll kind of went from being a pastor of, you know, it started, he started the church in his living room in his house um, with a handful of people and it grew to a multi-site, multi-state church by the end of 2014. Um, He was really lifted and promoted as being kind of the answer for the um, Gen X who were, wanted nothing to do with church and he was suddenly stepping in and um, was like people were saying, oh, what he's doing is what we need to copy and do everywhere else. And so there were a lot of copycat churches that weren't even part of Mars Hill, but through the Acts 29 network, I've met people that have been in who they were like Mars Hill-like situations um, in Tennessee and other states um, because it was so, um, he was platformed in a lot of ways. Um, he was known as the cussing pastor because he was so irreverent and um, was like, that was sort of a nickname for him. Um, he was, uh, in hindsight, misogynistic and um, regularly made jokes at the expense of other people in his communication style. His leadership uh, came out by, the, by 2014 um, his elder board asked him to take a leave of absence because his um, communication and his leadership style had become so abusive, um, just verbally abusive and angry and raging at people that um, they asked him to step down and take a leave of absence, um, which he at first agreed to do and then um, proceeded to say that the Lord had released him and he is now pastoring a church in Arizona. And um, so he never went through a repentance process, never reconciled with all these people. And in the process of that, devastated the lives of literally hundreds of people. Um, And many of them were our dear friends who started Mars Hill um, back in the late 90s. Um, Don and I were in the Bible study at his house when he was first launching. We babysat Mark and Grace's kids. We... Um, like Grace and I ran the women's ministry, like dinners for the new moms. I mean, we were like right there in the first group of people. And um, so there's the podcast goes into 
an enormous number of issues. Um, there are issues about how the media is used. There's issues about um, accountability. There's um, just like a wide range of things. And so it was really hard as I was thinking about our own experience and then what we've seen happen to our friends, kind of even to know where to focus. Um, no, mm -mm. Um, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast was um, a pro uh, uh, part of Christianity Today, put it out, and um, it, uh, Mike Cosper was the producer, and his voice is on the podcast. It's very well produced and tells an like, incredible story, um, if you want to hear more. And, you know, right now, the issues surrounding church abuse in other places, um, there's lots of other examples of sexual abuse and sexual misconduct and um, financial abuse and, you know, you name it, um, going on in the church today. This was always sort of like um, there was one sort of moral bad decision after the next where you kind of were wondering, wait, is that okay? Is that okay? And then finally the elders stepped in and then by that point it was just everything fell apart. And so this was sort of a less clear case, I think, than the ones where you're like, oh, they were hiding the fact that they were having an affair um, because it was more an abuse of power. Uh, and it's an interesting case study because of that, because all of it is ultimately is an abuse of power. It's taking this, this role of authority that God places in the hands of people that are ministering to others and also like um, takes that... Um, authority and abuses that. So the thing about Mark was he was um, really from the beginning teaching a very like strong authority structure. Um, so which I will go into a little bit more. Um, so some of the questions that I want to answer today are like what like what made us susceptible to it? Like what what made it um, seem like it was okay? Because I that's the question I've talked to a lot of people. They're like, because when you listen to the podcast, you're like, how could anybody have thought that was okay? <laughs> um, and yet, literally, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in multiple states thought it was okay, and, and us included. And so, um, great. yeah, like, and great, and shared it, and, you know, shared his sermons. And um, so, um, and the other piece of it is what we're, like, in hindsight, I want to share some of the, like, what we now how we approach church and kind of um, what are red flags to look for as you're interacting with um, institutions and churches and um, that especially ones that proclaim Christ so um, yeah my family's here Don can chime in if he has um, <laughs> things that he thinks I missed um, so I wanted to start with a little setting because this is a story um, and for many of you, maybe you're not familiar with Seattle, but Seattle in the 90s in particular was a particular time and place. Um, it was very young and urban and hip. The tech-like center that is now in Silicon Valley was in Seattle with um, Microsoft and a bunch of startups were going on. Um, it was like nowadays people are maybe moving to... Um, Austin, Texas, or Nashville, or stuff like that. You hear young single people moving those places. That was Seattle in the 90s. Um, 
it there were a lot there was a lot of money um, because of the Microsoft stuff so there was a lot of energy and kind of new building and construction going on um, it was very postmodern and uh, very post-christian and very self-aware like they kind of knew they were it in the like the urban setting um, it was also for younger people who might not remember pre-cell phones pre-social media <laughs> <laughs> Pre-internet in your house, we had very, very slow dial-up. We did not get on the internet every day. Um, it was just a different time and place um, in that way. Um, it was also, like, rainy and dark most of the time. Like, <laughs> if you've never lived in Seattle, like, it's really kind of uh, um, people are sad a lot because it's just kind of sad. <laughs> and they kind of embrace that, like... I don't know. That was part of it. Was it a thing to be depressed? depressed? Not, it wasn't so depressed, but you didn't smile as much as you do in California. <laughs> this was the mecca of grunge music. Yeah, mecca of grunge music, right? Um, yep. And lots of flannel shirts and, yeah. So that was sort of the setting. Mark Driscoll was the head pastor. He founded Mars Hill with Leaf Moy and Mike Gunn. That their, the story of how they founded the church was part of what was the myth that was kind of communicated to the um, congregation on a regular basis, which was a um, tool of like creating this, um, like you felt like you were part of something because you heard the origin story all the time. Um, probably once a month it was in a sermon of like how the church was founded and like what how amazing it is that God was doing what he was doing and all of those things and from the outset I want to say I believe they were sincere they believe that they were went into this whole process wanting to see Seattle come to faith in Jesus Christ and um, I, they were young and maybe foolhardy in a lot of ways um, as they started out. Um, but I do think that the, uh, it started with, it, they didn't start out to think um, we're going to, you know, build this empire and get wealthy and take over, you know, hurt all these people. That was not where they were starting. Um, Don and I moved in 1999. So the church, had, I think it was late 98, 99, I don't remember. Um, and the church had been was about three years old at that point, but it was very much like <laughs> we they were renting space at First Presbyterian Church in downtown Seattle, and it was a big kind of gothic-looking building, and um, they only could use it on Saturday nights, and it was like just the perfect mood for young people. Um, it was you'd go and it was dark and rainy, and you go into this big gothic building, and the music is dark and moody and um you know it fit just the moment perfectly fit the vibe of the city it fit the youth culture kind of young adult culture don and i were like considered elders because we'd been married for like three years <laughs> and um <laughs> we were in our late 20s instead of in our teens or early 20s i mean like we were really like they were like oh wow come you know things <laughs> which is frightening all on its own. Um, so the mood of the city was just perfect. It felt authentic, and we liked that. Um, it was also a time when the church was coming out of, like, the 80s boom of 
um, everything in mauve, and they used to joke about girls singing love songs to Jesus, and everything was sweet and kind of syrupy in the church culture at that time. And so Mars Hill was sort of responding culturally to that with sort of a, a darker, a little bit more like, what are we doing? Um, why are we doing it that way? There was so much intentionality. They were rethinking every aspect of church, and we liked that too. We really enjoyed um, you know, feeling like it was they were doing things on purpose. Like we have communion every week, but we have it after the sermon because um, that get, you're ready to respond to what you heard from the scripture. And like, so there was just, and they communicated every decision and made you feel like you were part of what was going on and why it was decided that way. Um, we got involved right after we had moved to town. So it quickly became our entire social network. Uh, we bought into the Mars Hill plan for your life. And there was a plan for your life. And that involved it involved getting married and having kids as soon as possible. Um, we, the goal of the church was to take over the city through young families and kind of, um, they were like kind of the model of, uh, you know, the, what was the verse where you're, you know, build houses and plant vineyards. That was sort of the model that um, they were saying like the, the Israelites were supposed to do in Babylon. We were going to go into Seattle and, you know, become members of the community. Um, yeah, like a quiver full. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this, <laughs> I was working and Don was in grad school and uh, we bought into it. I quit my job, got pregnant. Don worked three jobs to keep us like afloat as he was in grad school um, because we had Theo and Joy both um, in quick succession there. Um, and we were one of many, many, many young families who were, um, you know, raising kids together. And um, the me real men provided for their families and real women stayed home. And you were not going to be in leadership in the church if your wife worked, period. Um, like... <laughs> Yeah, so this misogyny kind of message, this um, you've probably heard it in other ways of uh, God is the umbrella over everyone, and then the elders, the pastor, the husband, the wife, the kids. And it was very rigid structure of um, submission and authority, and um, that was just communicated regularly throughout all of the sermons and um it also felt very safe as a result. It felt like I knew what I was supposed to do. We were young adults. It was We were making adult decisions for the first time that were hard and confusing and murky. And we were also a generation that had grown up either with way too much purity culture input or latchkey kids with like raised by the television. There was kind of like not a lot of in between. <laughs> um, and so there was a lot of openness to somebody coming in and telling you how to be an adult and doing it with such confidence and humor and feeling like you were part of something. Um, we felt like we were supported and that we were doing things right, and that was comforting. Um, but it also, <laughs> despite it being right, we were being taught very strict gender roles that um, would later just come back to be difficult for our marriage and very difficult for women broadly across the church. Um, it is, 
really dangerous to sit under any sort of teaching for any period of time that undermines human dignity. And it might not even be, it, it's dangerous for the group that's being belittled, but it's also dangerous for everyone else because it, um, it, if you belittle anyone's human dignity in the process, you are undermining your own. Um, and it reduced us to roles and functions. It made relationships very um, uh, transactional. Um, Mark saw most of the world in kind of transactional terms, I think and relationships that way. And that is like extremely harmful. Um, and so here he was teaching a whole generation of young Seattleite people. And then as the as his sermons went online in the early 2000s, taught people, countless people all over the country um, that this was the right way to do marriage. Um, he had a book called Real Marriage. He like, you know, this was his MO was this um, gender roles and women. Um, I remember one sermon about Esther, and I, I just remembered this when I was preparing. Um, it came back to me, and I, um, he told uh, women, he was teaching on Esther, that um, wives should be like Queen Esther was. And he told this story um, that, we, that he said that um, his wife, Grace, had a, there were, he gave an example of how she asked him, for something and how he came home from work one day and she had dressed herself in nice clothing and put on makeup and perfume and made his favorite dinner and then gave him a back rub and implied other things were transactioned. And finally he thought, oh, you're so wonderful. What can I, what, is there something I can do for you? And she asked him, would you please, we have five children and I, have to do a lot of laundry. Could you use your bath towel twice instead of just? <laughs> so this was held up as an example of how a woman should approach her husband if she asked him anything. <laughs> She's still married to him, and I, 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 the part that breaks my heart the most is her situation. Um. And so this was held up as biblical marriage, that the woman should approach her husband as if um, Queen Esther, who was kidnapped and then <laughs> like, raped and made to be the wife, and then like if you went into the king's presence without permission, you could be killed. Like this was being held up as biblical marriage. Um, and interestingly, I didn't, you know, the you... We absorbed so much teaching over the years that it wasn't, you find these pockets of it. And this is the problem with church abuse, is that you find pockets of it stored in your head that you don't even know are there until you're confronted with the scripture in a different way. And then you have to, like, go untangle. What did I think I knew about this? And where, where, where is Jesus in this? What, what matches with what I know about Jesus? And... Um, so, you know, it was interesting because it was at the women's retreat in Cambria like five years ago at this church that was all on Queen Esther that I began to untangle Queen Esther. <laughs> uh, and I actually, at that retreat, I thought, oh, here we go again, Esther. I'm going to hear about how I'm supposed to be quiet and submit. And um, 
It was a different story. <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> um, and, you know, we were under that teaching for six years. And um, that, for me, the misogyny and the messages that women were um, inferior, that you had to question your voice all the time because it was Eve that was deceived. And you had to worry that you would be seen as boisterous or loud or um, unsubmissive because not only would that look bad for me but that would look bad for Don who I loved and it would prevent him from being in leadership and trusted and so all of that pressure was on the women of the church and as you can see it still closed my eyes I should have brought tissue <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, you know, it, we left Mars Hill 17 years ago. And um, just yesterday, I was approved by the board to be a, a conference ministerial candidate to be fully ordained. <laughs> so I'm starting the process of ordination. Did any man ever call any of this stuff out? Eventually, some did, but um, not many. Most of them were just ostracized and pushed out. You know, they didn't weren't around enough, long enough to um, have any sort of influence. Um, where am I? <laughs> so, like I said, there were a lot of issues raised in the podcast about church hierarchy and control, abusive leadership fame, money, fraud, music, mythology. There, I mean, if you want to be depressed, you can listen to the whole thing. <laughs> um, no, it's really good. It is well done, and it does raise these issues that are important, I think, for the church to understand how we got to where we are. Um, we left Mars Hill in 2005 because Don graduated from getting his Ph.D., uh, we moved to Orange County, and, um, and that was before things started getting really out of control at Mars Hill. So we sat under all of this crazy teaching, but it, when we left, I mean, we mourned losing our friends because it was some of the best time of my entire life. I'm not going to lie. Like, we had better community than I've ever had anywhere else. Um, we had very close friends. We felt on mission together. Um, on the podcast, Paul Petri said that it was some of the best times of his life. And he was like, and I was like, it's so true. And I thought to myself, listening, oh, it's fun to be in a cult. <laughs> and because the truth is, is that it is. Like, that's why people get sucked in because you really. Um, and it, it is fun to feel, you know, sure of yourself and um, what you're doing and be right. And quite frankly, Jesus actually calls us to faith and not certainty. He calls us to daily walk with him in humility and not being sure and right and out in the world. So then in 2008, our friends who were still there, I, our, our close friends all had quit their jobs and become elders in the church. They were pastors. Like, every, like by the time we, by the 2008, there were probably 24, 27 pastors. 
like multi-site. They were broadcasting Mark on video. Um, it was kind of a big thing. They were starting to tell us things that things weren't right. And we, you know, but they, it was always a little murky because they were um, afraid and they were afraid that maybe we would say something to somebody else and it would get back that they were being, um, you know, not loyal or gossiping. Um, and this fear of gossip is um, often silences um, in churches. So that's something to be aware of that when something is really wrong and abusive and sinful, like you, like it's not gossip to go to the person and then use the biblical model of going to them with other people um, and using the power structures that are in place to hold things in check. So I just want to make sure we say that. Um, some key elders left the church silently, including um, Jamie Munson was the president of the board and he was my best friend Jen's brother and he left with no explanation and we were like and I think we don't know still that he signed an NDA uh, which is a non-disclosure agreement um, because shortly after that Sutton Turner was this person who came in and he put all of these business models in place for the church he re reduced from a wide elder board down to a small structure of like executive elders who were, um, which included himself, surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, and like we were down in Orange County. I don't know if you're familiar with the Montage Hotel in Laguna Beach. It's like, uh, you know, five. Like yeah, it's like a $500 a night hotel. They had their elders retreat, flew them down from Seattle to stay at the Montage, and we were like, what? <laughs> That's not the Marcel we knew. And um, then um, Sutton eventually asked all of the elders to sign um, NDAs and then non-compete agreements, which um, would say that any of the elder, if the elder pastor, if they left Mars Hill, that they wouldn't go work for another church within 30 miles of an existing Mars Hill branch. So think about that as a church and the gospel. <laughs> like, we're not talking about like a, I won't start another radio shack near your, like, we're talking, we, they, they, you know, so this is just a weird thing that happens in churches. And um, our, my best friend Jen's husband, Phil, refused to sign um, and he was fired. And um, he had given up his job as a teacher. He had a mortgage that he would not be able to afford without the job. And he was fired with no notice and no severance. Um, and thankfully, some people did a GoFundMe. And people that loved him in the church knew that that was wrong. But that was sort of the start of this, uh, a bunch of elders leaving. Two other elders had been um, kind of raised red flags and had been shunned and, like, uh, removed from their positions. Um, and then eventually the elder board decided to like hold Mark accountable in some way. And then, uh, Mark refused and left and now is in Arizona. Um, and then the church sort of collapsed and then they had to figure out legally how to break up the properties they owned and all of those things. Um, and all of this ended in 2014, and then this podcast got made, and then everybody's like, oh, Marcel. <laughs> um, so the interesting thing is, is that after my friend Jen's husband, Phil, refused to sign and he got fired, 
the next Sunday, Mark preached a sermon, and I listened to it in California, and I'm standing there in my kitchen streaming this um, sermon, and he starts talking about wolves in sheep's clothing and implying that Phil was the wolf that had been pretending to be this humble man. And listening to Mark, whose voice I had trained myself to trust and believe and kind of like take in unfiltered, like when I heard him say that and I knew that he was talking about Phil, I I started shaking and like felt like I was going to throw up. Um, Because again, that church abuse where you have opened yourself up to think of somebody as an authority when that is, then there's lying and then abuse of power. I mean, it's just so traumatic and you feel it in your body. Um, We watched a lot of friends try to rebuild their lives after this and they're still in a whole bunch of different states of being able to do that. Um, Many of them are not, they can't even walk in the door of a church because they shake so much. And um, some of them have walked away entirely from the Lord. Others, I think, will find their way back. Many of them have ended up, we were just saying last night with a friend, they've ended up in Anglican situations. And I think that's partly because they can show up and read the liturgy and go through the body motions and they don't have to, there's less personality. They can take communion and then they can walk out. And um, there's, you know, the sermon is this big instead of this big. (laughs) Um, And that is helpful. Um, You know, there's so many things, but we watched Mark and Grace through this process, like change, I think, in what their goals were. Um, And, you know, um, I don't, I feel really sad that they were not ever able to like reconcile with people, that they were, there is still all this kind of brokenness for the people, um, for them and for the people that they hurt. Um, yeah, but I would just say, I mean, they're, they're people and they like, I think got sucked into something bigger than, than, than themselves. Um, there was a lot of change going on technologically during that time too that I think were sociological factors that were influencing um, you know the rise of the internet and the ability to put things online and the influence that you can have that way it's very tempting to look at those numbers and think that is like because when people come week after week and attendance goes like this and you can't really pay attention to what's going on in people's hearts and how they're changing seeing download numbers go up and up and up feels like kingdom work (laughs) Uh, in a way that other things don't or and all of that was new all the like what now people talk about clicks and likes and online stuff um, all those measurements all of that was brand new Um, after we had been gone away from Marcel for a long time a friend of mine who had listened to Mark online um, not anywhere nearby and she said, asked me, she was like, you know, I was talking, she said she was talking to her sister and her sister said, you know, we really need to ask ourselves what was going on in our hearts that we loved listening to Mark so much, that we were willing to listen to him um, make fun of people and, you know, make jokes at the expense of others in the midst of a sermon um, and to be so brash and uh, in so many different ways. 
And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that and uh, some things for myself. Um, Mars Hill was answering big questions that were going on sociologically kind of in uh, that nobody else was answering. Um, They, other churches weren't answering them. And those questions about like the roles of men and women and are you a consumer or are you a child of God? Are you like, all right, what matters? It was a time in the 90s where you felt like the excitement and things, the growth of the 80s and all of that kind of had gone away. And we were kind of, everybody was sort of like, it was all about buying stuff for your apartment and looking good. And the consumer culture was like kind of had shifted in a way, but it also felt very empty. Um, and so they were answering a lot of questions about like, what is, what is the purpose of being a Christian and how do you reach a city and how do you like, what are we doing here? And so we were open to all of that. I said before it was very authentic. Um, it really fit the time and place of being in Seattle. And so that, that community was appealing. We wanted that certainty. Um, there was also entertainment it was just plain fun to go to church and hear him make jokes because it was humorous and it was like, you know, entertaining. And you could listen to him. He was an incredible speaker. And um, so that was part of it. Um, and then the purpose and mission, um, being part of something larger than yourself, um, not and feeling connected to a community that was doing it together. All of those things made it with him sort of directing the ship, you kind of got on board um, because you wanted all the other things. So what are some things that we have learned about church and red flags, warning signs for us? Um, One thing that has become very important to us is to understand the structures of accountability. Um, We only go to denomination churches now, not independent Bible churches, because we want like structures that are beyond just in the building. Um, but even within denominations, there are plenty of cases of abuse too. So you have to understand what those structures, power structures are, um, and then take advantage of them. If you think things are out of line, um, it's all things happen because so many people stay silent. Um, I, I would even say testing leadership. So if you see something that's out of line, if you see me do something that's out of line, please tell me. You know, like, talk to us, and, you know, hopefully our hearts are such that we would respond in humility. But a big red flag is if that doesn't happen, right? If somebody doesn't respond in humility and with trying to understand and trying to build reconciliation, um, then that is a red flag. Um, Trust your gut. Um, Don't give people a pass so regularly if something seems off, um, you know, like... God gives us a conscience and the Holy Spirit to help us understand. Um, A big thing that was being said at Mars Hill, and I've heard this in the media for other abuse situations, is people give a pass because so many people are being saved. Or we didn't want to say anything for the sake of the gospel. Um, And the big lesson that we watched happen is that all those people that were being saved, most of them are not saved. Because they were saved into a power structure and a gospel that was a false gospel. Like, it was one that couldn't sustain them because, you know, it was 
there was so much false teaching mixed up with it that when the abuse and everything came out, you know, they had nothing left because they didn't actually have a core. And the people that are still walking with the Lord that came out of that were often people that had be, were Christians before they got involved with Marcel, who had some foundational knowledge and relationship with Jesus that was separate from the church. So all the excuses that we made because so many people were being saved um, were false because what are you saving people into? Um, I would say be wary of anyone who teaches you that you or some group in the church is inferior, lacks the full dignity of humanity, as well as like, um, you know, the big thing that I, helping me unpack some of the false teaching about women was just there was sort of this understanding that we like had Jesus light or like part of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> but maybe not quite all. Um, so just being aware that God freely pours out his Holy Spirit on all people who've come to him in faith and that that makes us all equal in him. Um, looking out for authority structures or people that call for submission. Um, anytime I see somebody say, though, the elders asked us to submit, I'm like, red flag, red flag. <laughs> um, there is a place in church for not being disruptive and argumentative. Not, you know, we, the free Methodist is, uh, we ask people to live in harmony, but um, living in harmony with one another is different than submitting and putting your own, like, thoughts and everything aside. Um, it's an attitude of, like, coming to the table as equals to discuss things. Um, so any sort of fear, um, being told not to gossip, um, those are red flags. Is there a plan being presented for your life that limits the work of the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I mean, that was sort of the, um, you know, this, this Mars Hill kind of ideal of left out what, what do single women do? What do um, people that haven't found a spouse yet, uh, what is, you know, like, and just even the whole idea that you should, like, so many marriages got started on nothing more than I think she's hot and, well, you better marry her and, like, have some kids um, with that little premarital counseling and kind of foundational um, strength. Um, is the social life of an institution all-consuming, or do they request that it be so? I've had friends who actually got involved with a very literal cult, and they were told to break off all their relationships with mm. family members and um, friends who weren't part of it. So that's, that's epic red flag. yes, <laughs> that one should be obvious. But like I said, a lot of the things that should have been obvious to us were not um, in the process. Um, this is more subtle, but there is often in these situations an in-group or a sort of a special people that have access to like the pastor or the they get invited to things and other people don't it's not a democratic process how that happens if you ever find yourself feeling like you wish you were in the in-group in an organization that should be a red flag too like that if you're feeling like you were excluded or like that they're I mean, all that kind of discomfort that is so subtle, but it, that can be a um, and just an indicator that things are not healthy. 
Um, watch out for business models in the church. Uh, NDAs, non-compete agreements, growth strategies. When we were in Orange County, um, Mars Hill went down to Orange County and they were opening Mars Hill Orange County, which we thought was really funny because they were telling all these stories about how unchurched Orange County was. I was like, it is way more church than anywhere else we have ever lived. <laughs> like, I mean, people would come up to me at the playground and not ask, do you go to church, but which church do you go to? Um, so like for California, it's very churched. And so it was really funny because they were making these videos and saying how it was a dark place filled with consumerism. I was like, mm, it's not quite right. But we went because we wanted to see some friends um, and we went to visit the Mars Hill when they were opening there in Orange County. And the whole sermon was literally a growth strategy of like, bring five friends next week and then the week after that and like just very weird like it was like weird 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 <laughs> like, um so you know just beware of like uh things like that how did we go to another church uh we well when we left mars hill remember we like things hadn't fallen apart and we were still walking with the lord so we found a church um and we're going to uh an assemblies of god church in orange county and we had new friends and a, um and that was like we were there for five or six years before um mars hill opened the orange county branch um I would say also listen to your body. If your body, if your heart is racing, if you're shaking, if you're feeling nervous, um, your body holds those memories. And it, oftentimes you, not only memories, but like you know something's wrong physically. Like we're, you know, God gives you these sense of like the hair in the back of your neck rises. And if if you feel yourself feeling uncomfortable, stop and ask yourself why. Um, and remember that those are there for your, um, for part of your healing process too. Um, so um, the podcast goes in and one of the episodes is all about br the brand and kind of what happened on the technology side. And I think that piece of it is very interesting in terms of um, kind of the case study aspects. Um, so, and there's a lot of stuff that can be said about church as a brand, church as a business, um, church as an influencer. Um, this is kind of uh, where we've seen a lot of churches um, outside of Mars Hill in different circumstances where they have gotten this, you know, meteoric kind of influence and popularity and celebrity. And... Um, so I'm gonna just say the church is not a business. <laughs> the church is not a business. I just want everybody to know that. Um, Mark majored in communications. He did not major in religious studies or go to seminary. Um, and so when the push came to shove, the tools of his trade were entertainment, effective storytelling, humor, media, marketing, and branding. Like that's what he was trained in as opposed to being trained in theology, church history, pastoring, <laughs> like um, knowing the scripture, knowing Jesus, you know. So that's where that education piece comes in and why having trained pastors is important too. Um, 
Mark was a person and those were his skills. He, he was very young and he reverted to what he was trained in as he was given all this responsibility and things were growing so fast. Um, and I do think he got caught up in those sociological and media forces that were taking off with the internet at that time. There's a book called Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Profits Are Hurting the Church by Caitlin Beatty. Um, I heard her interviewed and she was talking about the difference between fame and celebrity inside the church. And um, she said, you can become famous for people just finding out about what you're doing. Um, so he, she gave the example of Mother Teresa. She was off in India. She was like doing her work. She's taking the like, you know, you hear these stories where they would get shoes donated and she would let everybody else find their pair of shoes and then she would take whatever was left as the last pair, whether it fit her or not. Um, and she became famous because she was doing good works. Um, celebrity, on the other hand, she defined as using media tools to project an image to gain money, power, and influence. So using media tools to project an image to gain money, power, and influence. At some point, Mark shifted. When he started getting famous for just what he was doing in Seattle, he started seeking celebrity. Um, and he knew how to use those platforms because that was what his background was in. Um, he liked it. I think we all made excuses saying he was being shrewd and savvy, shrewd being the biblical word. <laughs> As shrewd as snakes um, is the verse, but um, and he was using business and marketing tools for the gospel, and his influence, he said, was what he wanted it to spread the gospel. But there's a danger in trying to seek influence for influence's sake, rather than just trying to do the the work of loving your neighbor and serving the poor and um, building up people's humanity and healing them where they're at. Um, so in Mark's case, the growth of the internet and his online reach became so great that he started thinking of his online church as his church. And he was writing his sermons for how many downloads he was going to get, not for the people in the pews. And um, with online, that's still a danger for any church today, that that influence, and as especially during COVID, like, you know, we all switched to this kind of online model. Um, and it's a danger for us as the listener as much as it is for the pastors, because um, sometimes you like, you might find somebody online that you like to listen to. And I, I had a friend who she like became Catholic, and she's like, because she's got a bishop in LA that she lives in Germany. She listens to this bishop in LA. <laughs> um, and I think it's just like, because the, you can control it, you can download it when you're, when it's convenient for you. You don't have to have relationship with the person talking or with anybody else. When you go, um, you can feel like part of something when you listen to an online group, there are online communities that revolve around these, um, different, very, uh, well-spoken teachers, charismatic, yeah, and like, or they'll even claim that they're prophetic, and you can get caught up into those kind of things, um, but it's a danger also for the pastor, because you become removed from the people, and I'm 
don't believe that was ever Jesus' intention. So if the church is not a business and marketing machine, I thought a lot about what it is and what it's supposed to be. And um, I want to read from Luke chapter 4. This is when Jesus first started his ministry. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was getting famous. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Is this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to him, surely you will quote quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with uh, a leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, and they got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the cloud and went on a crowd and went on his way. And I wanted to read that because I want to make sure at the end that I would say that Jesus is familiar with church abuse. <laughs> he is one who um, did not try to just please the religious establishment. He wasn't trying to please his hearers, even when he was famous. Um, they tried to throw him off a cliff, and that was at the beginning. <laughs> we know where the end is. He ended on the cross because the religious establishment didn't like what he was saying. Um, did not like the good news that the kingdom of God is near for those who are oppressed, did not like how inclusive it was that we were going to open it up to everyone to come. And um, so if any of you personally have dealt with church trauma or you know people who have, I would just say, like, Jesus is still, even when his words and his people have been weaponized against you, he is still the one that you can find that um, strength and acceptance and grace. He does have a message of the year of the Lord's favor for each of us. So um, that's kind of my story. I just wanted to open it up to questions, too. If you guys, I I went over a lot, but I'm happy to (laughs) answer questions.
Yeah, Mark is, he's pastoring in um, Arizona. People have tried to go talk to him and um, he has, still has an online presence too. Um, but he like has bodyguards and there's... And is his it, it's gotten even more extreme. He's like, his, his market has shifted now that he's in Arizona. Um, so it's like less liberal and more, he's gotten into the politics and some of that. Yeah. Anyone else have questions? We're all too traumatized. Yeah. So it didn't come out of any denomination to begin with. It was all independent. No, it was all independent to start with. Um, he said that, you know, Grace, his wife, led him to the Lord and gave him his Bible. And he said that he heard God tell him to, um, you know, train young men and plant churches. And that was what he started out to do. Um, Mike Gunn, who started the church with him, was uh, we had uh, Athletes in Action Campus Crusade background. And in fact, when he left the church to go plant another church in South Seattle, like that was one of those moments where Don and I were like, because we knew that Mike was sort of keeping Mark in check and was like somebody who he respected um, as kind of an equal and authority. And the fact that we were nervous about that should have made us want to leave, but it didn't. What you brought up about, um, you know, gender roles and marriages, that's especially interesting because it, you know, that's just a big issue in mainstream churches that that are not cults. And so that is a real complication, you know. Well, and I felt like I've had so many people who maybe came from a more... um, you know, less complementarian, more egalitarian view of marriage to start with, go, how could you have fallen for that? But I, I think so much of it, I, we were kind of raised in a very, or I came to Christ in a very um, literalist interpretation of the Bible. Um, and so I was already primed to think that, you know, women should be their husband's helper and submit and, um, and I remember debating these issues in ninety in the nineties in Campus Crusade. Yeah. And, and hearing really, you know, there was divisiveness in our group over that very issue, and hearing some very strong talks about roles. Yeah. So. And it's still an issue where people yeah. use it as a litmus test to whether or not you're actually really a Christian. Right. What you think about right. what women should be allowed to do in the church. Mm. And it's all about these issues. Yeah. You know, untangling all of this has been, like, really hasn't happened for me until we came here to Free Methodist. We were at, uh, you know, the church we were at in Orange County had women in leadership and stuff, but I I just wasn't forced to kind of think about it, I guess. Um, And because I really do want to be careful with the scripture. Like, I love the Lord and I love his word and I did not want to, you know, like take it lightly. And, um, but you know, what came to me, but that, um, convinced me more than anything is that, um, 
in the at Lord's Prayer, he says the Lord, we should pray that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. And the fact that God has given all of us the equal access to the Holy Spirit, I just can't imagine that in heaven that we are going to be lesser, like that we won't be fully redeemed. <laughs> And um, so if we are to pray that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, then women should have um, the freedom to walk into all of the gifting that it comes with the power of the Holy Spirit upon us to preach good news and freedom from oppression. Um, anyone else have any thoughts, questions? You want to say anything, Don? Um. Yeah. Well, the experience of being the guy there was different, um, and part of the part of the appeal to the men was that, like, the guys were really slackers, like they were really not getting jobs, and they were not responsible people. Period. Let alone responsible in their family. And so Mark was calling a bunch of men to um, be responsible, and like there was a way in which that was very attractive as well. Um, not, not exactly to me, because you know I, I had just been in the Navy, and I was, like Sandy said, I was like running three jobs, and I have this aversion to being controlled. It, like, it really rubs me the wrong way. And so there were a couple times when they tried, when Mark in particular tried to get me into the structure, and I, not super consciously, but like I refused to participate in it, and I kind of was put on the outside. Like, I was never really invited to the inner circles and stuff. But um, he wanted to bring me in, and he wanted to establish a story for me. Like, what was my story in the, in the church? And I wouldn't have anything to do with it. Like, I just would not participate in that, because it felt demeaning to me, and it felt controlling. And I maybe coming out of the military, I was, like, super, super triggered by trying to be controlled. And, and I had a, I had, I had my own agenda. You know, I was, I was getting, I was getting a degree. I was trying to raise a family, and so like, um, and I knew we knew we were going to leave too. Yeah. We knew that after the program was done, we were going to leave, and so there was a way in which we couldn't be part of this story because mm -hmm. this story was about staying in Seattle and raising your family, and that wasn't something we could be part of. Kind of like what Sandy was saying, like this was a story that didn't work for us, even though we were had had other ways in which we could have. And so, for me, it inoculated me a little bit against some disarm. Um, but you know, I was happy to allow the gender roles to be taught. Like I, I didn't, I don't think I bought into it, but I was happy to benefit from it. Um, you know, so I don't think that I particularly enforced it, but I wasn't exactly like unpacking it either. Really. <laughs> <laughs> wanted to hold me up as like the tech genius the, 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 he did yeah he, he, he was trying to he would, he'd do it with flattery too he'd go oh you're the smartest guy i know and yeah but see my response to that is you don't know very many people right? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I, I was in these environments which is super brilliant people so someone coming up to me and flattering me and telling me i'm really smart i was like oh no you need to get around some real smart people like that didn't that wasn't working for me. Again. yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. He wanted me to be like the um, the Steve Jobs at Marcel. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't. I didn't want to do that. You were talking, Sandy, about the um, like red flags and safeguards and things, and the thing that comes to mind to me through all of what you're saying is the character of Christ. Mm -hmm. We see so many things, and when they don't line up with the humility, the compassion, the grace, the love, the freedom offered in Christ, that, you know, we do, we get that trigger in our heart, like, there's something wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And then whatever our experience of the rest of the world says, well, no, that's, that's okay. But it's really, if we are focused on the character of Christ, mm -hmm. Preach. <laughs> That's actually kind of where I'm going to go next week is really like thinking about like um, as we look at Jesus, there are things actually that um, he calls us to that can feel like, you know, like the problems of church abuse. He does have a plan for our lives, right? And it is all consuming. Um, but then how do you separate that from some of the, um, the worldly structures that are created in the church? Um, and what do you do when those things have been kind of tangled up? Because it can be really hard to like figure out what was Jesus and what was the church that you were part of. Um, That's great. Paul calls himself a slave for Christ. Yeah. Because he wants to be all things to all people. Yeah. I've been watching the, the Chosen series, you know, about Jesus' life, and so it's bringing to life the backstory. Mm -hmm. Stories that we've heard, you know, studying the Bibles for, Bible for years, know all these stories, but all we know is this little thing yeah. that happened, and so the Chosen is like showing you what they've reconstructed as the backstory of what yeah. happened in there, and, um, and seeing how they're showing Jesus, you know, camping and having to deal with all these <laughs> disciples. They know that he's the Messiah. And he knows that he's the Messiah. And yet he is so gentle and kind and humility is there. And it's mm. like, wow. Yeah. It really comes through. Yeah. I love those. They always make me cry because of that. Um, and it, like to give you another like little example, Mark once told uh, a group of us I, he probably even said it in the sermon for all I know that he was like saying that he was I'm not good one on one I'm socially awkward but I'm good one on many I was like oh narcissism you know like Jesus was good one on one and loved people and likes to be in relationship with us and like that should be a sign of his people too so well oh. One. Oh, yeah, we can do one more question and then Yeah, I want to let you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just curious how you process it with your family and your kids. I kind of missed reading of your talk. Yeah, well they were like they were older when we left. I mean, they were still young. Like Theo and Joy were five and three when we moved here. So they weren't they don't really have memories of all of this. Um, we've talked about some of this over the years, like um, but I, I don't know that they know kind of the extent of I might be new to Martha today. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, 
uh, I don't think so. Or like aren't familiar with his sermons and stuff. They're nice, clean slates of. (laughs) 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 They don't realize their mom was traumatized. And so if they taught her, if I taught them wrong things when they were little, there's grace for that too, right? All right. Well, thanks for coming, you guys. Thank you.